Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. So hello and welcome to the Microbial Bioinformatics podcast. Lee, Andrew and myself, Nabil, are your hosts for today. And we are joined again by Professor Mark Pallon, who is a professor of microbial genomics in the University of East Anglia and a research group leader at the Quadrum Institute. We're continuing our trip down memory lane and reflecting on some of the exciting bioinformatics moments and lessons learned for bioinformatics in the 21st century. So Mark, welcome back. Great, thank you. Well, thanks for having me. Last time round, we left it just around the turn of the millennium. And it was an exciting time to be in microbiology because we were getting all these genome sequences and we were seeing for the first time that the big picture, even with E. coli that people have been studying for the best part of 100 years, half of the genes were not discovered until its genome was sequenced. And I got involved in that area, not just through the genome sequencing projects. I mentioned Campylobacter, but I was also involved in genome sequencing projects for Carinobacterium diphtheriae and an un- unusual organism called Trophorema whippleii, which is an organism that causes a disease called Whipple's disease and li- lives in the small intestine. And at that time could not be grown in the lab. There's a guy called Didier Raoul in Marseille. His team had actually managed to grow it in association with human cells. And we approached him and said, do you want to be involved in a, a Sanger-led sequencing project? And he said, I don't get involved in projects unless I lead them. Would I be the lead? And the Sanger said, no, we don't do things that way. And so I managed to persuade a, a guy, David Relman, who had actually was the one who, he was a hero of mine at the time. And one of the great things about a career in academic life is, you do get to meet your heroes and sometimes you can get to work with your heroes as time goes on. And, and David had been the, the first one to show that uh, Trophorema whippleii was a distinct organism. He'd amplified its 16S sequence and had actually given it that name based on the 16S sequence. And so he was up for genome sequencing it. And it took them 18 months to grow enough biomass of this organism in the lab before they had enough DNA to sequence it. So the actual growth phase of the project took longer than the genome sequencing phase of the project. Luckily, in France, they set up their own project. And I'm not normally nationalistic, but in this occasion, I'd like to say that the UK won and and France came second place in that one. So, Mark, is this the guy who uh, there's a bit of a scandal around him with COVID and the hydro? Indeed, it is the same guy. And uh, I I think that in life, there are often these people that stir things up. And sometimes they create a lot of trouble and a lot of difficulty. But at the other time, they do create something new that wasn't there. And Didier Raoul is one of those people who had his reputation has been severely tarnished during the COVID epidemic with his championing of, of treatments that don't work. But 
He was the first person to work out, or his group at least was the first group to grow this organism, Trophy Whippleye, in the lab. He was also the group that discovered the Mimi virus, these giant viruses with huge genomes that have functions overlap with bacteria, so completely blurs the distinction between viruses and bacteria. Now that's microbiology 101 is, well, there's a clear difference between bacteria and viruses. It turns out there isn't, and that's down to DDA Raoul. He's, he's also invented culturomics, high throughput culture. And if you go to the databases and you look for the species epithet applied to bacteria that is most commonly used, it is Massiliensis which is the Latin word for from Marseille, uh, because his group have named everything that comes out of Marseille Massiliensis or Massilia or, or whatever. And there are hundreds and hundreds of bacteria that they've named. His contribution to science is, is quite astonishing. It's just unfortunate that he's just had these problems recently. And, you know, there are similarities with Craig Venter, which was a person upset a lot of people as well, even though we, we do look back and say, well, he did... He did progress the field by shaking things up. And yeah, so we sequenced Trophorema whippoli. Interestingly, just in recent year, in the last year during lockdown, one of my old school friends from primary school, no less, got in contact with me. Uh, and I hadn't seen him for nearly 50 years. And I said, how are you getting on? He said, oh, yeah, he's all right. But he'd had this heart infection with this very unusual organism. I said, oh, what's that? He said, it's called Trophorema whippoli. And I said, oh, well, I know that organism. We sequenced its genome. And it was like, brought it home to me that it's, yeah, it is, it's a very rare infection, but it affected someone I knew. And he'd actually, he's he just in the last few weeks relapsed. Uh, so, you know, it, it is an important infection. Anyway, what happened then was that I, I started uh, getting interested in doing homology searches, similar to what I've done with urease, but looking at these new genomes. So suddenly we had this landscape of dozens and dozens of new genomes. And we could analyze those genomes, we could see what's in them, and we could start to make sense of it. One of the first such opportunities was that I, I moved to Ireland. I took up a chair in, in, in uh, Queen's University, Belfast, Northern Ireland. When I arrived, it was not long after what we called the Good Friday Agreement that had brought peace to Northern Ireland. And the British and Irish governments were making it very clear that they wanted there to, to be much more collaboration across the border. And they set up a research fund where people could apply for grants for research straddling uh, Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland. And soon after I arrived, there was a guy um, who worked in Trinity College Dublin uh, called Tim Foster, who was an Englishman who, who was famous in the field. He was one of my heroes in the sense in that you know, he, he pioneered the application of molecular biology to understand the, the way in which Staph aureus causes disease. I contacted uh, Tim Foster and I said, they set up this scheme that's supposed to be getting people working on either side of the border, collaborating with each other, but they're not going to check our passports and say, well, actually, we're British people working in Northern Ireland and in the Republic who are using this money. So why don't we see if we can tap into that funding? And he said, yeah, OK, why not? I said, well, what about we try and data mine the, the recently released Staphylococcus aureus genome? He said, yeah, OK, I suppose so. I said, anything you're particularly interested in? He said, well, we, we know that there's this uh, enzyme called sortase, which is involved in targeting proteins to the surface of Staph aureus. These are so-called LPXTG proteins. And it would be great if we could mine that genome, because we know some of them, 
but it would be good to know all of them that are in that genome. Do you think you could go away and do some bioinformatics to find all these? So I said, all right, I'll have a look for uh, sortes and its substrates. And it turned out that the substrates had this particular motif, LPXTG, and they usually in Staph aureus were scattered all around the chromos. And so I, I just took the sortes and I used a program called Cyblast, which had just come into common usage, which is an iterative process. So you can do a blast search and say, oh, here's a load of homologues. And then you can say, right, let's now build a model out of all those homologues to look even further into kind of homology space, if you like. To me, at that time, Cyblast became the equivalent of crack cocaine because you, you run a Cyblast search and you see a load of things. You think, wow, yeah, that's good. Those are things I kind of know about. Well, there's a couple of things I wasn't expecting. You press the button and reiterate, and then suddenly a whole load of new things come in. Wow, I found a load of new stuff. Then you run it again and you find a load of new stuff. And it was like, wow, this is just amazing. And so I did this with sortes, uh, and I did it with the substrates as well, with the particular region of the substrates that, that is recognized by sortes. And I did it on Staph aureus, and I found, I can't remember the exact number, half a dozen or more new sorte substrates. And Tim uh, went on and patented all those, and, and we wrote up a nice paper on, on, on those new, he, they did some lab work characterizing them in Staph aureus. But I thought, why stop at Staph aureus? We've got all these other genomes out there, dozens and dozens of them. Why don't I just run the same analysis across all of these? And I did. And that was one of those moments where it, it brings to mind, uh, there's a guy called Alfred North Whitehead, who in the early 20th century said, the goal of every natural scientist is, is to seek simplicity, but mistrust it. And this has been a theme that you kind of think you understand the thing and it's all quite simple. And then it turns out when you look harder, it's not that simple at all. And so what I found was that when I looked in other organisms, not the sortase substrates weren't all scattered around the chromosome like they are in Staph aureus. They're actually usually clustered in a gene cluster with the sortase enzyme. In some cases, including in Staph aureus, in fact, there was more than one sortase. We kind of thought, oh, it's a single gene, single copy gene. It's doing a fundamental thing. There won't be multiple copies of it, but it turned out in some organisms, including Chloronibectium diphtheriae, which I was working on the genome project for, it turned out there were multiple sortases and multi multiple substrates, and they were often multiple clusters with the two things together. And so it turned out that this was one of these things where you suddenly, by looking at the much wider genomic landscape and carefully using these homology searches, you can come across things that you'd never anticipated. And it turned out that the sortase uh, wasn't just sticking things on the cell surface. In some of the actinobacteria, it was actually targeting things to the surface and then making them into fimbri, gram-positive fimbri. So it was part of the mechanism for building these fimbrial appendages that were on the surface of, of that particular group of gram-positives. So that was one example where um, it was clear that if you do these homology searches and you do them carefully and you use all the data that's available to you, you can suddenly see a, a much wider landscape. Uh, I had a similar experience with a, a guy came to, to um, by then I was in Birmingham, he came and he said, oh, we've got this new test for TB that relies on an antigen called ESAT-6. It's a T-cell test and it's much more sensitive than anything else. And I said, so what is this ESAT-6? He said, well, it's the it's a major antigen. I said, well, yeah, the bacterium doesn't make it to make an antigen, to be an antigen. That's just a side effect of interaction with the host. But what is its function for the bacterium? He said, I don't know, I'm an immunologist, I don't care. 
So I thought, well, I'll go and have a look and see what I can find. And um, I did uh, side last searches. And what I found was that there was a particular ATPase associated with the system in TB, in the gene cluster. Um, and there were these, these substrates. And when I carefully did homology searches, I found that these things were not just present in mycobacterium tuberculosis and other related mycobacteria, not even just in the actinomyces, which other people had kind of hinted, but they were very widely distributed. They were found in, in Staphylococcus aureus, in, in Streptococcus agalactii. They, they were even found in some gram-negatives, which is a bit weird. Why on earth would they be there? And we still don't know to this day what they're doing in some gram-negatives. But this opened up a whole new, like, wow, these things are much more common than we, we anticipated, and there are many more uh, systems out there. And in fact, one of the nice ironies was that the Sorte system that I mentioned earlier, that was a great example of predictive science in that there's a guy, Olaf Schneewind, who had seen all the LPXTG proteins and predicted that there was a specific enzyme involved in putting them on the surface that he called Sorte's. And his wife, actually, uh, Dominique, was so interested in what I'd shown with the ESAT-6 system, WXG100, as we called it, that she started working on that in Staphylococcus aureus and, and that she started researching that area. So that was quite a, a, a nice thing. I then got more interested in E. coli and did lots of work on E. coli, started working on type 3 secretion in E. coli, particular secretions, around also flagella secretion. One of the things I found when analysing E. coli genomes we, we kind of imagine that E. coli K12 was handed to us by God, if you like, as the model organism. It's this perfect organism. And it's not going to show any kind of hallmarks of degeneration or anything like that. What we found when we looked was there was a, a type 3 secretion system cluster, which was called ETT2, which appeared to be extremely widely prevalent in E. coli strains. But in every case we looked at, there were frame shifts and deletions suggesting the thing didn't function as a type three secretion system. And then we found looking at the K12 genome, that was this funny little flagella cluster of two flagella genes that were homologous to fl flagella genes from the main flagella cluster, but they were incomplete. They had no start, start codons, they had no promoters. That's just like this weird little scar. And then when we sequenced interaggregative E. coli's genome, we found that in, in that position in the genome, there was a whole complete new flagella cluster, which we called FLAG2, that was present. And so the scar is present in all E. coli's and just a small number of them retain the ancestral state. So as an example where you look at K12, it's got these, it's similar to what Darwin spoke about vestigial organs in the origin of species, but you get vestigial genes, you get, you know, and we'd seen that as people were sequencing genomes in, in Mycobacterium leprae, they found lots and lots of degenerated genes that were present there. But the idea that this happened in, in the most revered organism, E. coli K12, seemed a bit shocking. At the, looking, at the time, it seemed shocking. Now, looking back, well, why do you expect E. coli, e. coli K12 is just another organism? It's just another strain. So what? But that was, that was very interesting. So for K12, I've, I'm not an E. coli expert, but the experts have told me that it's, it's a weird organism. And in contrast, you said it was handed to you by God. Like, wouldn't you have preferred something a little bit more representative of E. coli? Well, one of the things that happened early in genome sequencing days was that people said we should sequence the type strains 
the strains that everyone's using, the, the model organism strains, that brought problems because the same is true that Salmonella, Typhimurum, LT2, many of these strains have been in the lab for a long period of time, have been subcultured. The K12 even have been irradiated in its ancestry. And so there is this question, do they reflect the real world? It's a bit like the first human genome was largely Craig Venter's genome, and we don't want Craig Venter's genome to be the only representative of the whole of humanity. And so it became clear that we really need to sequence lots of strains. And Gordon Dugan, when he moved to the Sanger, he, he made that point that it was best to take fresh isolates that have been in the wild only recently and been minimally subcultured and sequence those alongside the lab strains so that you actually get to see things uh, as they really are rather than the degenerative forms you see in the lab. And, and that was a, a, a big insight. And it's, I, I did actually, in those early days uh, with Brendan Wren, we wrote a review for Nature where we kind of made this point that you've got to look at all this genome stuff in an in what we call the eco-evo context. The evolutionary ancestry of the strains you're looking at and of the, of the species, you know, so how does Yersinia pestis arise to become a very specific thing from a general background? How did Mycobacterium leprae arise? All that sort of thing, so it become very specialised, but also the ecological context. So that many things that we'd say, oh, that's to do with virulence, they turned up in things that weren't virulent organisms. They were just commensals or environmental organisms, these things like the sortases or the the WXG100 systems, and, and it became clear a lot of people at that time were recognising that you could use invertebrates as models, animal models, and you could even use amoebae as, as models. But actually, that's, that's not artificial because the struggle for life, as Darwin called it, between bacteria and eukaryotes goes on everywhere. It goes on in the soil and the oceans, and most of it is between unicellular eukaryotes and, and bacteria. We, you know, complex metazoans are kind of an afterthought, that struggle. So that was an interesting kind of observation that came out of all that. The other thing that happened around that time was uh, a guy from uh, New Zealand called Scott Beetson approached me. Uh, he'd been working with a guy, Chris Ponting, and I'd, I'd worked with Chris Ponting. Chris Ponting taught me a lot about how to, to do domain searches and homology searches in proteins. And he said, oh, we've got this guy who wants to come and work with you. And I said, well, I suppose he can come and work with me. And, and I said, Scott, you know, okay, you can work. He said, well, I've got to put in this proposal for a Dor Dorothy Hodgkin fellowship. I said, well, our, our grants department can't work that quickly. He said, oh, well, I've got to do it. This is my one opportunity. So I called them and I said, would you take it? And they, they said, I suppose so. And, he, and I thought, can he actually write a proposal of the week? But he did and he got it and he came to work with me. And he'd been working on Pseudomonas ruginosa in the past with another one of the giants in the field, John Matic in, in Australia. And I said, well, you could work on that if you want, Scott, but you don't, now you've got the fellowship, you don't have to do what you said you'd do. And this great opportunity has come up because I've been nosing around on the back of this ET2 secretion system and just looking more generally at type three secretion in E. coli. And what I've noticed is that there are these so-called effectors, which are the targets of these type three secretion system. And everyone's assumed that they're all present and clustered in this one gene cluster called the Li, the locus for enterocyte effacement, uh, because they think it's kind of a modular system. You just plug that Li into a, into a cell and it becomes able to do type 3 secretion. But we've got hints that there are lots of these effectors that are homologs of those things elsewhere in the chromosome. Do you think you could have a look at this? And so he went there and looked at it. And to cut a long story short, by using homology, we managed to find dozens and dozens of new effectors. We tied up with Gaddy Frankel in Imperial 
um, and uh, Toru Tobe in Japan, and we're able to even show that many of these were actually secreted by the secretion system. And this led to a, a vast expansion. It led to a, a PNS paper, in fact, as well. But it was one of, for me, that was one of the most uh, rewarding things where we actually tied the bioinformatics predictions into laboratory confirmation in a very coherent way. And it was, it was really quite exciting. So I had a question. A little bit before the E. coli, you were talking about looking at the antigen on tuberculosis and it had mm-hmm. and and you had to look into the function and everything. Do you feel like that might have like a tie-in or or might be a predecessor to um, the efforts for reverse vaccinology in, in that whole field? Oh, definitely. Um, reverse vaccinology was something that came in uh, in the early part of the 20th century, as well, 21st century uh, as well, on, on the back of those first tiger genomes, people going in and saying, well, we can go out and we can do that. In fact, that particular protein had been discovered before the genome had ever been sequenced. It just turned out to be one of the most, the brightest antigens that, that, that was recognised by T-cells. And that's why it was picked for this T-cell antigen detection test, that the so-called Elispot test that was developed for TB. But to this day, it's still not entirely clear what the function of that particular protein is it seems to have all sorts of proteins and people have looked at it from many different angles and it seems to do all sorts of things and it's probably part of the secretion system as well it it, it turns out that that whole uh, system is very complex and very multifaceted all right and on that note i think we'll draw to a close i want to thank our guest professor mark palin for joining us today Join us next time on the Microbinview podcast where we continue our journey with Mark. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at Microbinview. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.